Hi, everyone, and welcome to the End of the World podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world, and that's why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are thinking about the end of the world. This week's show explores global religion and the pandemic, with a special emphasis on religious nationalism and its role in pandemic responses. We begin with a survey of religious responses to COVID-19 in South Asia, using this to explore the worrying spread of authoritarianism in response to the pandemic, and we'll look at how quote-unquote public health laws and other measures are being used to target religious and social minorities. We'll also look at how internal religious and social cleavages are making effective COVID-19 responses difficult from Pakistan to Afghanistan. And we'll also delve into how Hindu nationalism in India has harnessed the popular appeal of Vedic science to pass off bogus Ayurvedic medical claims as cures for COVID-19, with remedies ranging from turmeric and cow urine to Baba Ramdev's herbal coronel pills. All this is made possible, scholars suggest, by the broad support for Hindu nationalism across much of India. From thinking about these issues, we'll pivot back to the United States and delve deeper into the politics of Christian nationalism and COVID-19 debates. As our authors this week suggest, at the heart of Christian nationalism is a potent blend of religious, ethnic, political, and economic beliefs that come together to form a distinct political dynamic that's at the heart of current COVID-19 opposition and intimately tied up with the politics of white racial grievances and social change. The world is becoming increasingly global and diverse, but not everyone is happy about those changes, and some want to go back to the so-called glory days. We'll delve into the hows and whys of some of these beliefs and these dynamics, and more in this week's episode. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my World Religions and Global Issues class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. Welcome to our week four lecture for world religions and global issues, and also our final lecture for our summer class here at CSU Chico. So as we move into our final um, lectures and readings for this week, we're looking at um, four main articles, Pandemic Politics in South Asia, Muslims and Democracy by Matt Nelson, Viral Fundamentals, Writing the Corona Waves in India by Banu Subramaniam, Donald Trump, The Christian Right and COVID-19, The Politics of Religious Freedom by Jeffrey Haynes, and Saving the Economy, Liberty, and Yourself, Christian Nationalism and America's Views on Government COVID-19 Restrictions by Samuel Perry, Andrew Whitehead, and Joshua Grubbs. So again, start out with sort of a, a big picture story here. Um, in our readings this week, we looked at sort of how the impacts of this global coronavirus pandemic had played out in different parts of the world and particularly in relation to different religious traditions. 
And as we saw in our first set of readings focused on South Asia, um, our author there argues that the global pandemic has given a boost, unfortunately, to authoritarian regimes and authoritarian politics. And we're often seeing um, emergency powers being invoked under the name of public health um, or quarantine-related measures, um, but having the result of suppressing both public dissent and forms of government criticism. Now, as our ongoing dive um, into Hindu nationalism, which we've looked at a bit over the last two weeks, and Hindutva ideologies in India has shown, um, unfortunately, religious nationalism there also continues to play an important role in both um, the targeting of religious minorities and ethnic minorities, particularly Muslims, um, and also those who are most um, vulnerable to the COVID-19 outbreak, um, in part because they have limited access to medical resources and staffing, which, as our authors know, it's leading to not only further demonization, but also the ghettoization um, under the guise of quarantine politics. We'll talk a little bit more about how that works. Um, and we also see um, from our author the way in which uh, Vedic sciences in India are being sort of abused and used by political figures, um, Prime Minister Modi and many others, Hindu yogi um, Baba Ramdev, to promote a whole range of bogus health claims that um, relate to COVID-19, either alternative cures or um, supposed treatments to help deal with that, none of which, as our authors note, have any documented medical basis, um, but rather draw their legitimacy from this kind of broad Hindu cultural influences in India. And then finally, in our last set of articles, we're looking um, at religion and pandemic politics here in the United States. And particularly, as we see in these two articles, the role of um, nationalism and Christian nationalism um, in influencing debates over COVID-19 and focusing on these issues of personal liberty and religious freedom, uh, in particular, personal liberty and religious freedom from secular government intervention. And as we've seen these uh, most recent debates over the past year, year and a half around COVID-19 um, are part of this sort of longer, broader history of um, Christian right and political engagements with the government and questioning the legitimacy of secular authority, particularly when it comes to um, matters of religion and individual choice, let's say. So that's kind of the big picture of what we're talking about this week in our articles. So in this first article, Pandemic Politics in South Asia by Matt Nelson, um, we started to get a, a bit of a cross-sectional overview um, in four different regions and countries looking at how the pandemic is playing out. And as he argues, unfortunately, what we're seeing is the emergence of um, not really a new trend, but rather an intensification of the existing dynamics in India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the contested uh, region of Kashmir and Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh in Northwest India. Um, and in this sense, he argues, it's, um, it has altered the political landscape um, as much as climate change has altered our weather introducing more intense versions of familiar challenges, for example, stronger hurricanes of Hindu majoritarianism and Muslim marginalization in India, longer droughts restricting civil liberties on the Indian side of Kashmir, more expansive floods of anti-state protests in Pakistan, and hotter fires of religious authoritarianism in Afghanistan. So he argues that um, COVID-19 debates have really sort of uh, revolved around not just in South Asia, but more globally, um, debates about kind of two competing religious, uh, sorry, two competing political regime types, um, which he describes as authoritarian with more of a greater focus on sort of bureaucratic capacity. So China might be a classic example of this um, versus democratic regimes with a greater focus on electoral legitimacy. And at least we'd like to think the United States would be an example of that. 
Now, as Nelson notes um, about these democratic states, in particular, the patterns of legitimacy um, are often mediated by these different entrenched social divisions, and this is certainly true um, in India as well, with electoral legitimacy varying dramatically across different social groups. So these forms of pattern social exclusion um, create what he describes as segmented patterns of legitimacy, and then that results in uneven patterns of state capacity and effectiveness. And so we see these various segmented social cleavages um, in the readings we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, um, particularly around uh, religious divisions. So we can think about um, last week, our discussion, well, two weeks ago now, week two, about the 2002 Gujarat massacres um, between Hindus and Muslims as a good example of the way that these segmented social cleavages are playing out. Now, Nelson also looks at the kind of political responses to COVID-19 in these four different countries and concludes that ultimately COVID-19 is acting as a force multiplier, basically accelerating these anti-democratic trends that he says are already um, present in shaping the region. So for example, in India, he argues that um, both the enforcement and the containment strategies um, around in response to COVID-19 have largely been shaped and determined by Hindu nationalist politics and the underlying political philosophy of Hindutva. Um, for example, he describes the way that the Diobandi Sunni Muslim group, the Tapliji Jamaat or TJ, um, became a target um, of government COVID-19 restrictions um, using um, the, the sort of government of India using these outdated British colonial laws like the Ep Epidemic Diseases Act, which goes all the way back to 1897, um, which allowed at the time and still since it's on the books in India, um, the government to impose mandatory um, quarantines and have those policies of them and used by the Indian government um, to target Muslim and other minority communities in India. And as we've seen, this selective targeting of Muslim communities by Hindu political leaders um, has taken place in a number of ways, for example, referring to Muslims as human bombs um, in social media and in other sort of press statements and using um, other divisive language to target Muslims in India. I mean, as Nelson notes, um, these patterns of demonization, um, indeed overt securitization, he argues, um, were not limited to just BJP statements targeting the TJ, for example. And we, other examples he highlights include the Twitter hashtags like Corona Jihad and terms like Corona Terrorism to attach to um, Muslims in India. So as he argues, in India, the ruling party's response to the pandemic built on these existing social cleavages is in ways that unfortunately reinforced the segmented approach to state legitimacy. And he argues, in fact, India's selective application of the existing laws, such as the 1897 Epidemic Diseases Act, um, actually challenged the formal underpinnings of liberal democracy by um, setting out these kind of differential treatments for different religious communities within India. In the case of uh, Kashmir, which you can see there on the right in this map picture, um, is a Muslim-majority, sort of Muslim-dominated area of India um, that has been the center of debates over um, political autonomy and independent struggles for a number of years now. And the most recent COVID-19 sort of enforcement laws and policies have built on a few years, 2018, 2019 in particular, um, of exclusions from the state government in Delhi, sort of the national government, um, against sort of local political autonomy. So some of these that he mentions that are important are the sweeping curfews that were put into place uh, by the Modi government, both before the current COVID outbreak and throughout in different periods. 
Um, the two thousand important two thousand nineteen amendment to Article three sixty seven, which effectively disbanded the Kashmiri Constituent um, Assembly. So the Constituent Assembly basically would have been the political body that would have drafted what could have been a you know an independent constitution um, for that state, or if it had broken away as an independent country. So that sort of short circuited that um, political possibility. Um, Indian government also invoked Article 370, which allowed them to further undermine local Kashmir political parties' uh, self-rule and autonomy by effectively giving um, the president and the sort of Modi government in um, sort of national um, center politics more influence and control over local Kashmir politics. We saw this also with the 2019 um, parliament redefining Kashmir as two new union territories. So no longer um, this sort of large contested area of Jammu and Kashmir, but now Jammu and Kashmir is one state and Ladakh as a second independent um, state, but both union territories, so both um, falling under the broader jurisdiction of uh, Indian national government. And also examples such as parliament removing various rules that had in the past prevented outsiders from owning land um, and restricting other uh, foreign work and such access to what had historically been um, Kashmiri community residents. So all of these uh, new changes have taken place in the last couple of years and have accelerated these um, dynamics um, under the course of COVID. You can see one example of why these might matter. So on the left, um, you can see the map of the proposed breakup of uh, Jammu and Kashmir in kind of the red and Ladakh in the yellow on the right. And why that's important is if you look at the map on the right, you can see that red dividing line is roughly where the two states have now been created by the, this partition. And what you see is that a large portion of that sort of south and southwestern Jammu um, is majority Muslim or heavily Muslim, I'm sorry, uh, heavily Hindu. Whereas a big chunk of both Jammu and Kashmir historically have been Muslim dominated, but by sort of cutting off what is a, mostly or largely a, a Buddhist area into Ladakh in the east, um, and congregating sort of Muslim Hindus just in the state of Jammu and Kashmir, and these new restrictions um, being lifted that allow for more Muslim migrants to come in, to buy property, to take over businesses. And um, what you'll see is a slow transition where much of that area that's um, green, representing Muslim majority, um, either 50 to 90 percent, will increasingly become more blue as a Hindu majority grows there. So it's another uh, sort of clever strategy by Hindu nationalists to take over um, even more state territory and state areas. Now, in addition to these various efforts to undermine Kashmir autonomy and impose these various Hindu nationalist politics, um, we also hear from Nelson about non-BJP politicians. Remember that BJP is the ruling Hindu nationalist party. So non-Hindu, uh, non-BJP politicians being arrested, um, communications blackout being imposed, and even internet access being restricted or entirely shut down at times so that what's happening in Kashmir can't be communicated to the rest of the world. So as, as Nelson argues, in short, the state was placed under a type of siege for nearly six months until a Supreme Court review led most restrictions to be lifted. Um, but not long after that, um, thanks to the outbreak of COVID in 2020, um, Modi government reimposed many of those policies under, um, so in the past, maybe they had been under the guise of public order. Now they were being reimposed under the guise of public health measures. So these include, for example, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act of 1967, um, as well as the Jammu and Kashmir Public Safety Act of 1978, um, both of which grant the central government and sort of police and law enforcement broad powers to arrest and detain people, 
um, and just essentially disrupted the normal rules of political operations um, and restricting local political um, decision making in those cases. So as Nelson argues, it would be difficult to describe a more dramatic escalation of Muslim marginalization under the cover of COVID-19. When distinguished, the experience of Kashmir, however, was not merely the segmented marginalization and securitization of Muslims, but the use of legal provisions that explicitly suspended democratic norms in order to deal with an emergency. Provisions that might have been expected to expire were it not for COVID-19, which simply placed public order restrictions into a new public health legal envelope. So it's again that um, using essentially emergency powers, um, but abusing them in this sort of context. Now, if we look just a little bit further to the West in Pakistan, Nelson sees a different but related dynamic there where we're seeing more interreligious discrimination taking place um, in response to COVID. So here we're seeing the majority Sunni, um, Sunni Diobandi leaders um, referring to COVID-19 as a Shia virus. So you see here the Sunni Shia um, split within the larger kind of Islamic community playing out. Um, and for example, uh, Shia Muslims and Shia pilgrims, for example, coming back from Qom and Iran or other places on pilgrimage and being blamed uh, for essentially bringing the virus back into Pakistan. Now, what is a little bit different in the case of Pakistan, Nelson argues, is that the Muslim political groups here, um, because they're already in a Muslim-majority country, are essentially mobilizing against these various state government COVID restrictions to try to assert their own religious autonomy um, against the state. So as he argues, repeating a familiar line amongst the religious leaders who claim that God, not government, is their primary source of protection, Prominent Sunni clerics insisted that faith alone was powerful prophylactic against the virus. They argued that government intervention was not merely unnecessary but objectionable, with government antivirus measures being framed as a conspiracy led by anti-Muslim foreign governments to weaken Pakistan and undermine the power of Islam. The pandemic was recast as another platform for religious elites to compete with state-sanctioned secular elites and a push to define the parameters of popular legitimacy. So again, we see similar dynamics playing out there as we've seen um, in other countries, including here, um, where the opposition would have been uh, not to mosque closures, but let's say to um, churches and houses of worship. Now here we see two kind of themes that we've been discussing already in earlier weeks kind of returning again. And one being the religious claim from um, religious leaders that um, essentially their faith makes them immune to the pandemic. And secondarily, that faith leaders are asserting their religious authority as being superior to or more legitimate than secular government authority. So again, we see this bigger story that Jurgens Meyer talked about in week one um, about this growing tension between religious and secular sort of states and um, sources of authority and legitimacy. Now, these uh, issues were really highlighted over protests against mosque closures and other religious restrictions in Pakistan. Um, as well as in Kashmir as well, which led governments to renegotiate uh, mosque closures around Ramadan, um, in the case of Pakistan in particular, because of concerns about uh, violence from the Tariqi Taliban and the TPP, um, which was a group of militants that had emerged in earlier years um, in re response to earlier political conflicts there in Pakistan and kind of religious um, state um, disagreements. And these concerns also led, for example, the Pakistan army to press the government to enact uh, Article 245, which similar to um, some of the articles invoked in Kashmir by India, would essentially grant the police and military much broader um, powers to detain and arrest people with little oversight. So as Nelson argues, as in India and again in, Pakistan, in Kashmir, Pakistan's approach to the COVID-19 pandemic combined already existing patterns of marginalization with enduring patterns of resistance to state-based assimilation or encroachment. And as in Kashmir, Pakistan 
um, opted to reject familiar democratic norms, including fundamental rights, in favor of these emergency powers and emergency provisions. Now, if we go a little bit um, further to the West, the case of Afghanistan, Nelson argues that um, one of the most important factors um, remains the ongoing hostilities between the Afghan government and the Taliban militias. And as he points out, the government and Taliban efforts to delegitimize each other um, has significantly reduced public health responses by the state, um, largely because medical doctors and medical care and even vaccinations have become kind of weaponized or politicized by both Taliban militants um, and the Afghan state um, sort of as tools to undermine each other's legitimacy. Now, one important note is that in Afghanistan, um, Taliban leaders and Muslim clerics um, by and large did sort of take the threat of COVID-19 seriously. Um, and although it wasn't always consistent or regular, um, there were a number of examples where, for example, if there had been an outbreak in an area, the Taliban would um, cease their sort of military engagements in that region. And both the National Lema Council and the Lema High Commission issued fatwas or kind of religious edicts that um, said that mosques should be closed in Afghanistan in order to prevent the spread of the virus. So as Nelson argues that a more effective anti-pandemic response unfortunately was still thwarted by these segmented forms of state legitimacy and the restricted form of state capacity which was associated with these different enduring social divisions. In short, a pandemic was not enough to bridge the most important social and political cleavages. On the contrary, in Afghanistan, the pandemic reinforced these cleavages and bolstered the Taliban's efforts to delegitimize the Afghan democratic government. So what all this suggests um, for Nelson is that in the context of these South Asian countries, but we could argue in a more broader context outside of just South Asia, these legitimacy gaps associated with these various entrenched social and political cleavages involving Muslims or other groups of Muslims that have shaped state efforts to address the global COVID-19 pandemic um, have a, a certain pattern. And that pattern that's prevailed across all of these cases that Nelson looked at is of one, of pushing away the legitimacy of elected governments and um, a further push away from democratic norms. So Nelson argues that there's a persistent risk that COVID-19 analysts will focus on state capacity more than segmented legitimacy, um, inadvertently supporting either two things. One is this kind of first Chinese model of bureaucratic state capacity and sort of the biosurveillance that's gone along with it, or be a kind of anti-democratic model focused on these use of emergency powers and public health measures um, rather than um, you know, really addressing these problems. And he worries that this shift may help elected leaders defeat the virus, um, but in the end, what they'll realize is that they're actually killing their democracies in the process. And as um, he noted earlier, he sees these efforts in India and Kashmir and Pakistan and Afghanistan as part of a broader wave of anti-democratic and authoritarian politics um, that are appearing in many parts of the world um, under these sort of COVID-19 pressures. And um, that would include places like the United States and much of Europe. Now, in our second article, Viral Fundamentals, Writing the Chronowaves in India by Banu Subramaniam, we delve a little bit more again into this question of Hindu nationalism and how um, it's playing out in India. And she in particular brings up another aspect we haven't looked as much at in the past, which is the links between Hindu nationalism and science and medicine um, within India, which she argues COVID-19 has really brought to the fore, um, and particularly highlighting the role and the power of the BJP and these Hindutva ideologies um, in shaping these debates. So Supermanium argues, there's a powerful campaign within India and outside to rewrite the history books and tell a new story of India. 
its past, present, and future. Hindu nationalists have selectively and strategically used rhetoric from both science and Hinduism, modernity and orthodoxy, Western and Eastern thought, to build a powerful but potentially dangerous vision of India as a Hindu nation. And at the heart of Hindu nationalism is not only a mythological but an imagined mythico-scientific corpus, where Hindu mythology and modern science melt seamlessly into the other. One of the sort of best examples of this that um, Subramaniam talks about is the example of Prime Minister Narendra Modi talking about how sometime in the sort of distant past there must have been a plastic surgeon who for whatever unknown reasons decided to graft a human head, I'm sorry, an elephant's head onto a human body, um, which is the embodiment of Lord Ganesha, a human with an elephant's head. Um, and he suggested that this shows somehow that um, Hindu mythological beliefs um, have sort of this tie-in to modern science. And as Subramaniam sort of tongue-in-cheek jests, uh, even gods need doctors. So you can see there on the right a sort of classic example of a pose of uh, Ganesha. But the story we're getting from uh, Narendra Modi and others would make us think that uh, we should be thinking about something more like this, basically uh, an elephant-ish um, human, which we know um, is nonsense. Now, Supermanium draws an important contrast between Christian and Hindu views on science in her article. I'm noting that unlike many Christian fundamentalists who are strongly anti-science, um, Hindus largely um, embrace science, even if they do it through kind of a Vedic-tinted uh, sort of lens. And she argues, indeed, India has embraced scientific um, epidemiology and followed global protocols, often more vigorously than other nations. Um, the very fact that India is one of the main centers of producing viruses for several companies um, is a good testament to that. Um, but she also argues, and this is key, she suggests, that modern science is not all that constitutes quote-unquote science in contemporary India. In addition to global scientific protocols, the Indian government and Indian popular culture have enthusiastically promoted Vedic science as modern science. And she notes that this constant blurring of the boundaries between ancient Vedic science and modern science is significant in the circulation and consolidation of Hindu nationalism um, in these corona times. And she argues that these dual kind of systems, Vedic and Western science, um, could actually work together. And the Vedic sciences actually have a very long and rich history that we can learn a lot from and which can inform sort of Western science and medicine. Um, but unfortunately, the way Vedic science is being used by Hindu nationalists, basically, they're advancing all these um, non-scientific claims, but trying to wrap them in the veneer of um, Vedic science to make them seem more legitimate. So as she argues, Hindu nationalists have reduced Vedic science to a handmaiden to Western medical systems of knowledge, a facile system compatible to the aspirations of a neoliberal and increasingly corporatized state, um, which fits squarely with kind of the broader political and economic agendas of um, Modi's BJP party. Now, she also um, echoed some of the same concerns we heard from Nelson about how Hindu nationalists are targeting Muslims during the lockdown and scapegoating uh, Muslims and even uh, Chinese in some cases for spreading the virus. Um, and these are kind of the same social cleavages um, that Nelson discussed and also that Jurgens Meyer got into in our earlier readings. So one of the things she mentioned, um, so when she was writing an article in the fall of 2020, we hadn't seen the big outbreaks in the spring of 2021 um, that took place in India. And one of the things she talks about is how Modi's popularity remained really high, even despite the outbreak um, of the virus. And that seemed to have been strong throughout all of 2020. Um, but what we see is by 2021, that started to change, particularly in the spring um, when the outbreak really exploded in India. So you can see, um, 
chart here updated as of um, July 8th, 2021, looking at um, the approval rating of different political leaders around the world, this one for Narendra Modi. And you can see very clearly Modi had, you know, a near 80% or high 75% approval rating throughout um, the fall of 19 into most of 2020 and early 2021. It began to drop a little bit um, sometime um, in the summerish period of 2020, but not really significantly. It was really there when you start to get into March and then really April and May when the major part of the outbreaks were really ravaging India that you see a significant drop occurring um, both in Modi's approval rating and a spike in the disapproval rating hitting um, you know about 32% in May um, of this year and it's dropped down a little bit um, but that gives us some indication that um, although it seemed like Modi's popularity was essentially untouchable, finally, um, as the pandemic began to really spread and take hold, um, the incompetence of the Indian government became um, more and more clear to more people. And just to kind of give you some context, so um, here's looking at about a dozen other political leaders and their approval rating from January 2020 um, up until July 8th, 2021. And what you'll notice is um, two important things. One, uh, Modi remains one of the few political leaders that stayed above 50% um, for most of the period. It was really only until that outbreak in um, April and May that he dropped below 50% approval rating. Um, but also that Mexico and Brazil had the next two highest approval ratings for um, most of that period. Now, interestingly, uh, Mexico, uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador, stayed relatively stable across this whole period in terms of his public support. Um, by contrast, somewhere in Brazil, like you've got Jair Bolsonaro, started out relatively um, significant. Um, I believe it was around 20 or so percent um, public support back in January of 2020. Um, but by the time you get to July of 2021, his support has actually dropped down into roughly negative 20 percent. Um, in large part due to the failure of Brazil to respond to the crisis um, and his sort of denial of um, COVID as being a real problem. So you can see kind of the way that COVID has not only brought down public approval ratings in general, um, but also has been an important factor in how political regimes have um, kind of negotiated this period and their, with their supporters and potential opponents. Now, Supermedium reminds us that um, part of Modi's really continued high appeal um, is precisely that he's been able to draw support from this kind of broad Hindu nationalism, um, which has uh, deep roots, as she notes, in affluent, educated, and urban citizens, uh, many of whom benefited from the initial like four-hour lockdown, sort of uh, four-hour notification uh, in advance of the lockdown in 2020. Um, as well as other various efforts since then. And it's really been the poor and the marginalized, including Dalit caste Hindus and Muslims, who really face the brunt um, of the government failures. And so she suggests that the blurring boundaries of science and pseudoscience in India um, is really made possible by this broader kind of Hindu nationalism, which include things like the symbolic offering and drinking of sacred cow urine, and the Gamutra, to worshiping of new religious deities such as Kronamata. Um, and as she notes, even the ministry of Ayush, which was one of the kind of Ayurvedic uh, ministries that Modi set up in the last few years, has issued various advisories during the pandemic that included dubious prevention measures and prophylactics to the virus, such as using cow urine, ginger, and turmeric. Um, and as she notes, you know, government officials and many other spokesmen have advocated and circulated lots of kind of slick ads and infographics and social media um, content that plays up many of these bogus, um, you know, Vedic medical cures 
Um, Baba Ramdev being kind of a classic example of this through his company and through the creation of Coronil and Swasari, Ayurvedic cures for COVID-19, um, both of which have been rejected by kind of the Indian medical community as being legitimate um, cures. But just to kind of give you a sense of some of these debates taking place in India, um, here's a little clip looking at some of these po political debates involving uh, Baba Ram and COVID-19. This yoga guru's comments on modern medicine have outraged Indians on and offline. लाखों लोगों की मौत एलोपैथी की दवा खाने से हुई है जितने लोगों की मौत हॉस्पिटल न जाने के कारण से हुई ऑक्सीजन न मिलने के कारण से हुई है उससे ज्यादा लोगों की मौत ऑक्सीजन के बावजूद हुई है दवा एलोपैथी की दवा मिलने के बावजूद हुई है बाबा रामदेव हैज क्वाइट अ फॉलोइंग ऑन सोशल मीडिया बट इट्स नॉट द फर्स्ट टाइम पीपल आर शेकिंग देयर हेड्स एट हिज रिमार्क्स रामदेव हैज अ रेपुटेशन फॉर मेकिंग कंट्रोवर्शियल अनसाइंटिफिक रिमार्क्स Earlier he had mocked covid patients looking for oxygen cylinders and his most recent comments have now caused a huge outcry especially from the medical community which is still battling a ferocious second wave of infections The yogi withdrew his comments after criticism by India's health minister and the Indian Medical Association is urging Prime Minister Modi to stop the misinformation campaign on vaccination by Mr Ramdev The yoga guru has also advertised a supposed covid-19 cure among a whole range of other ayurvedic products marketing coronil as a covid-19 remedy had to stop last year when the government said there is no data to prove it works but recently the state of haryana announced they distribute the product for free to covid patients doctors are speaking out against this move saying this sends the wrong message about how to treat covid-19 This is especially dangerous at a time when the disease is spreading fast in rural areas where there are extremely limited healthcare facilities and misinformation and myths abound. In rural areas many are hesitant to get vaccinated for fear of negative side effects. आमच्या गावातले गावातून तीन माणसांनी लस घेतलेली आहे दुसरी माणसं घाबरतात लस घेण्यासाठी म्हणजे असं लस घेतल्यावर काही म्हणजे माणसं मरतात काय असं त्यांचं गैरसमज होतं इट इज अबाउट वन लॅक पीपल फॉर पीपल स्टेईंग इन दिस ट्वेंटी फाय विलेजेस द वॅक्सिनेशन सेंटर ऑर कॅम्प विच वॉज पुट ऑन फॉर दिस वन लॅक पीपल no single person came from this one lakh and took the vaccination hesitancy is only one factor hampering vaccination efforts medical facilities providing vaccines are often scarce with the closest hospitals hours away and only about half of india's population has internet access making vaccination appointments hard to come by for many So it gives you a little bit of sense of some of the context there of how some of these debates have been playing out but also importantly some of the pushback um that people like Bama Ramdev and others have gotten um who are more accepting of kind of let's say secular science and government authorities um but are not necessarily sympathetic to the kind of BJP nationalism um, that we're seeing promoted in other cases. So as Supermanium argues this blurring of the boundaries between religion and science has really been central to Hindutva in general. and the mainstream political apparatus media and even the judiciaries have all been co-opted into unquestioned support for Hindu nationalism in fact she argues even opposition parties are afraid to embrace a secular agenda in india and instead promote a hindutva light message she says we're seeing a brazen march towards a hindu india with actions such as abrogating provisions of article 370 that gave kashmir special status which we talked about earlier 
removing Article 35A from the Constitution that gave special rights and privilege to those in Kashmir. Uh, the recent Supreme Court verdict allowing the building of a temple in Ayodhya where the Babri Masjid or the Babri Mosque um, stood, which we also talked about, and the passing of the Citizens Amendment Act or the CAA that differently, differentially targets and treats Muslim immigrants from neighboring countries. So here again, we, we hear some of these echoes that Nelson talked about in relation to broader South Asian trends, um, as well as some links back to themes in weeks one and two, um, such as Hindu-Muslim tensions that led to communal violence in the 90s around Ayodhya and the destruction of the original mosque there, um, as well as the 2002 Gujarat massacres following the burning of Hindu pilgrims on a train um, coming back from Ayodhya. So Supermanium notes that these modern medical technologies are being abused in order to target certain segments of the Indian population. Again, this is the biosurveillance we heard about earlier, um, practices that have also been at work in Kashmir. So as she argues, this translated into poor neighborhoods and slums being more heavily surveilled as high risk, and people tracked if they moved between zones. And many of these high-risk, quote, red zones um, are in Muslim and Dalit neighborhoods. Thus, a public health tool was transformed into creating and enforcing ghettos of the sick. So, as she argues more broadly, rather than bringing people together during the pandemic, um, religious nationalism in India has largely torn um, people and particularly religious communities apart. Okay, that wraps up our first part of the lecture for week one, uh, or sorry, for week four. Um, and we'll continue with part two of the lecture for week four in just a minute. Here we are continuing with part two of our lecture for week four, where we continue to look at this issue of the global coronavirus pandemic and religion. So in this uh, next hour, we're looking at Save the Economy, Liberty, and Yourself, Christian Nationalism and Americans' Views on Government 19 Restrictions by Samuel Perry, Andrew Whitehead, and Joshua Grubbs. And you see a good example of that kind of resistance here uh, from Texas where people are saying they will not take the mark of the beast, i.e. the 2020 COVID vaccine ID chip. Now, as Perry and co-authors argue, public responses in the U.S. to the COVID-19 pandemic have uh, varied widely, um, with major difference between those on the left and the right. Um, but as they note, vaccine skepticism and vaccine opposition has mostly emerged from the conservative religious right, um, as well as claims that government health restrictions are illegitimate, and threaten Christian religious freedoms and even American capitalism. As they argue, we propose that a critical ideological element that undergirds many of the political and religious rationales for anti-restriction discourse is Christian nationalism. By this we mean a pervasive ideology constituted by identities, values, and historical narratives that center on preserving or, quote, restoring the preeminence of an identitarian and embattled form of Christianity in American civic life. As these authors point out, based on their research on Christian nationalism and COVID-19 skepticism, um, these are very closely linked. Both their own research as well as others have come to the same conclusion. But what we know less about, they point out, is how Christian nationalists have been responding to the most recent government COVID-19 restrictions. So as they suggest, both political and Christian conservatism unite and amplify one another um, within Christian nationalism. And we've certainly seen this with protests against COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns in the past year. Now, as they point out, there's a long and complex history around Christian nationalism and sort of the rise of what um, Haynes in our next article refers to as the Christian right that goes back to kind of post-World War II periods and the Cold War era. We talked about some of this earlier, the idea of the capitalist West versus the communist East. 
um, and the way that uh, global religious dynamics have been driving some of these changes. Um, but as they also know, allegiance to free market capitalism and the kind of related suspicion of government overreach became sort of quote unquote Christian values in this period. Um, and in subsequent decades from the 1980s onwards, um, the Republican Party was able, they argued, to further consolidate these ideological links between uh, Christian identity, patriotism, and neoliberal economics. And this is where we begin to see really the rise of the Christian right as a political force in the United States. Uh, for example, after 1980, with the election of Ronald Reagan, the president of the US, um, the emergence of the moral majority in 1979, and fights against LGBTQ rights and reproductive rights, things like pro-life legislation. Um, and legal protections, and the various support for both market reforms, uh, privatization, the dismantling of the welfare state. So all these trends um, being driven by this kind of uh, religious or Christian right emerging in the 1980s. So by the tw uh, 2000s, we could start to look at uh, the Tea Party as sort of championing many of these values, um, although the Tea Party now is essentially a bygone uh, sort of movement. Many of you may be even too young to really know anything about the Tea Party. Um, in more recent years, we've seen these kind of Christian nationalist movements and economic libertarianism being embraced um, by QAnon adherents and groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, um, as well as many vocal Trump supporters. And as our authors argue, um, these beliefs have also led prominent Republican um, political leaders to express skepticism, or in many cases outright hostility, um, to COVID-19 restrictions, either from the federal government or at the state level. Um, particularly those that in some way were seen as infringing on either church or the economy. In fact, some Christian fundamentalists went so far as to suggest that COVID-19 was somehow the work of the devil. Uh, for example, one conservative religious uh, pundit from a, an important Catholic uh, journal argued there's a demonic side to the sentimentalism of saving lives at any cost. The mass shutdown of society to fight the spread of COVID-19 creates a perverse, even demonic atmosphere. And we saw many other religious conservatives denounce uh, COVID-19 social distancing guidelines as a threat to capitalism, uh, to religious freedom, to individual liberties, and in some cases, even to America itself. Uh, so as Perry and his co-authors argue, adherence to Christian nationalist ideology was the leading predictor that Americans engaged in, quote, incautious behavior in May 2020, such as attending gatherings of more than 10 people, eating out at a restaurant or shopping for non-essential items. And it was the second leading predictor that Americans failed to show recommended precautions, um, such as wearing masks. Now, because of this, our authors hypothesize that Christian nationalism uh, will powerfully predict that American uh, prioritize the economy and individual liberty over protection of immune compromised or otherwise vulnerable um, populations. And to try to kind of test that theory, uh, they basically went and looked at three sets of public opinion data that had been collected between 2019 and 2020 through YouGov as part of the public discourse and ethics survey. And they kind of honed in on three key sets of themes, um, save the economy, save liberty, and save the vulnerable to try to measure these kind of Christian nationalist sentiments. And so as they kind of hypothesize, you can see here in figure one from the article we read about predicted values of kind of American views um, related to social distancing. So you can see there basically uh, one on the bottom being kind of strongly agreeing, uh, sorry, strongly disagreeing to five being strongly agreeing, um, and then the scale of Christian nationalism on the bottom. So as you move further right, sort of stronger on the Christian nationalist scale, we see more and more strong um, 
agreement for the need to save the economy or save liberty or stronger disagreement about the importance of saving the vulnerable. And so, for example, just as a reminder from the survey, examples of um, strong sort of uh, agreements with saving the economy would be with statements like, we must lift social distancing restrictions as soon as possible in order to avoid economic collapse. And under the category of save liberty, uh, strong agreement that citizens have the right to expose themselves to risk if they would prefer to work and travel freely. So as our authors found when they were testing their hypothesis, um, these trends are consistent with the direction of association we see among males, Republicans, political conservatives, born-again Protestants, and those who are more religious. In other words, as they note, all those characteristics associated with Christian nationalism. And they argued that we see that Christian nationalism powerfully predicts Americans' views towards mandated distancing restrictions um, in the ways that they had predicted in their paper. Now, the authors also found one really fascinating bit that perhaps is not intuitive and you wouldn't have guessed, um, and that was that religious views themselves are actually not a very good predictor for political views. So, for example, as they noted, at the bivariate level, so when you're just looking at two variables, um, religio religiosity was associated with Americans prioritizing the economy and liberty and deprioritizing the vulnerable. Uh, but once Christian nationalism was accounted for in a multivariate model, so you're looking at multiple different variables on how each of them play kind of together in shaping opinions, religiosity is actually associated with favoring imposed restrictions in spite of concerns about the economy and liberty. And it's also positively associated with concerns for protecting the vulnerable. So this is really interesting. So what this suggests is that the most important variable in this mix is actually politics. And then after that, politics plus religion. So when you have strong Christian religious beliefs by themselves, that doesn't tell us anything. But when those are combined with conservative nationalist leanings and sort of conservative politics, then we see these damaging kind of Christian nationalist ideologies emerge that prioritize you know, these individualist uh, concerns over the general welfare. So religion on its own actually pushes people in the opposite direction, towards more care for the vulnerable and greater support for government COVID-19 restrictions. So this is a great example why we want to kind of um, think about and pay attention to these nuances going on. So here's a little clip from um, Dr. Sam Perry, who's one of the authors of this article. I'm talking a little bit more about some of this research around COVID-19 and Christian nationalism. Take a listen. In the book, we define it as an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of American civic life with a certain kind of Christianity. And so whenever I say Christianity there, I, I always want to put an asterisk by it, uh, because the word Christian to people who are scoring high on our measure of Christian nationalism, and I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, when I say the word Christian, it doesn't just mean somebody who has, a, has a, a, a belief in Jesus or says that, that they're a disciple of Jesus or, or wants to follow Jesus or, or all of those things. Uh, what it means is somebody who, who, when they say Christian, they mean people like me. And for uh, white Americans primarily, uh, it means people who are white. Uh, it often means people who are, it implies that you're born in this country, uh, so native born, that you're a citizen and that you're a cultural conservative. And if you're a a Christian like they are, like a, a, a conservative Protestant, fine, but mostly Christian is just kind of an identity marker in that sense. And so what this group wants to do is they, they people who score higher on this, this kind of value of Christian nationalism want to uh, advocate a fusion of a certain kind of Christianity, that kind of Christianity with American civic life and belonging. They want to institutionalize that uh, to see it 
uh, uh, set in the laws and in the policies that we operate this country by. So, I mean, it, it sounds to me, and this is how I've, I've pictured it for a while, this is a fight about what it means to be an American, a fight for the American identity. So that, you know, in their mind, to be American is to be Christian, asterisk, right. <laughs> and to be Christian is to be American. But, you know, I want to touch on something that you, you just got to there. Being a Christian, your research shows that being Christian nationalist is not the same as being Christian. And I, I think that's really critical for people to understand, and it, it, we'll talk about the way it shows up and has these interesting dichotomies. But can you can you talk about that a little bit, how these are not exactly the same thing? Tease that out for our listeners a little more. Right, for sure. And, and what we try to do in the book is from from basically the preface is we, we try to clarify that when we're talking about Christian nationalism, we're, we're not picking a fight with all believers of all religions and certain, not even all Christians. Uh, it really is not about religion per se. It's, it's about this kind of political theology that masquerades as religion. It uses Christian language to disguise uh, political designs, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it is foundationally political. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically ethnic uh, to the extent that it's held by white Americans. I mean, it very much kind of takes on this really ethnic flavor when I mean uh, Christian means people like us. Uh, and so it's it's not Christianity, and in fact, it, it behaves a lot differently uh, from from religious practice. We have a little graph that we can we can talk about in a little bit. But but what we often find, and this this actually shows up in study after study, is when we account for Christian nationalists, this Christian nationalist ideology, oftentimes being more religious behaves in the exact opposite direction. So Christian nationalism it seems to incline people to become more xenophobic more racist, more fearful of religious outsiders, um, more, uh, more resistant to common sense gun control, uh, more, uh, more, in favor of, more in favor of violating recommendations. We'll talk about this in a second. More in favor <laughs> of violating health recommendations when it comes to coronavirus. But we actually find that once we account for Christian nationalism, being more religious uh, oftentimes is is uh, it points to being more pro-social and agreeable in a lot of, uh, I think, meaningful ways. So as uh, we heard there from Perry in talking about his book, which uh, this paper um, was an earlier version of, Christian nationalist ideology, even after accounting for these socio-demographic, religious, and political characteristics, um, is the leading predictor that Americans prioritize the economy and deprioritize the vulnerable. And it's the second leading predictor behind only political conservatism of prioritizing individual liberty. So again, this is really important to stress when we're thinking about um, religion and global politics is even within one um, specific religious tradition, Christianity, uh, there's a, a huge range of diversity here. And it's only within this kind of very small subset, we're talking about probably less than, let's say, 15 or 20 percent of the entire United States. And that even might be a bit of an exaggeration um, who might fit in this kind of Christian nationalist ideology. And as Perry was just mentioning there, um, there are really important and actually uh, oppositional tendencies um, between some of these Christian nationalist arguments and kind of Christianity as a faith tradition um, in itself. So as they note, and this is kind of an important point for us to think about as sort of scholars of religion, um, clearly social scientists, pollsters, and those in the media need to employ greater nuance when explaining why so many Americans are resistant to governments implementing and or maintaining sweeping social distancing restrictions. The answer is not political partisanship or evangelicalism per se, 
Um, but much of it has to do with this pervasive ideology that blends Christian identity with conceptions of economic prosperity and individual liberty, um, even at the expense of the vulnerable. And you can see here just from kind of two random pictures that I um, pulled out from U.S. protests against coronavirus, uh, the top one from California and the bottom one from, I believe it was uh, Colorado, um, where you see the idea that social distancing is uh, communism and that uh, freedom should trump safety um, and communism. So again, this idea that uh, somehow um, social distancing guidelines, COVID guidelines are not only anti-American, but they're actually communistic. And we've heard this a lot from conservative um, kind of pundits who have been attacking these, that it's this kind of slow slide towards communism or socialism. Again, because it conflicts with their understanding of what America is um, and the centrality of these kind of religious freedoms and religious virtues. Now, in the article we read from Jeffrey Haynes, Donald Trump, the Christian right in COVID-19, the politics of religious freedom, we delve a little bit more deeply into these questions, particularly the church-state kind of relationship here. And you can see some of these protests um, from different parts of the country arguing for churches to be opened up. Now, what Haynes argues in his paper, um, and really it builds on findings of Perry and others, is that the links between religious freedom and secular governments are actually quite important and that much of the strong support for um, Trump among religious conservatives was based on a sort of a very intentional political calculation um, that his election would help advance their religious political agendas, um, particularly rolling back issues for LGBTQ rights, um, women's reproductive rights issues, um, through both legislative changes and judicial activism. And this is exactly what we see now with the Supreme Court stacked with conservative Christians um, who now are on the verge of possibly rolling back some of these legal protections and have already in some cases. Now, in other ways, Hayes argues, uh, and importantly, Trump was not successful in advancing all of the kind of Christian political rights agenda, um, particularly those relating to COVID-19 restrictions. Um, which was a key issue. So despite the lack of leadership from um, Trump, several uh, sort of Christian fundamentalist groups decided to just kind of take matters into their own hands, Liberty Council being kind of one of the leading examples of this. And this is actually part of a much bigger trend where we've seen um, lots of small kind of state or regional-based conservative religious organizations um, challenging a whole range of different political issues through uh, lawsuits. But what really unites the, these various members of the Christian right is the shared belief, um, Haynes argues, that America's Christian foundations are fatally undermined by secularization, and it's crucial to reverse this trend in order to return to what they understand to be the founding Christian values of America. And critically, these lawsuits are one way to do that. Now, as we've seen, the, we can kind of trace the origins of the Christian right back all the way at least to the 1980s, and some people would argue earlier. Um, but importantly, recent demographic shifts in the last 10 or 20 years, um, ha particularly um, since 2000, let's say, are really driving these kind of increasing levels of religious political activism and some of this religious militancy we've been looking at in the United States um, because historically dominant groups are losing power, which in the United States means middle class white male Protestant Christians from Western European ethnic descent. Um, who, the kind of who look like us people that um, uh, Perry was talking about in that video interview. And we saw this really clearly in display, if you remember, um, when white nationalists were marching around Charlottesville with torches shouting, you will not replace us. Um, it's this kind of idea that, um, you know, 
particularly white male uh, Christians are losing power and something has to be done to address this. So as Haynes notes, uh, white Christian conservatives, once the quote silent majority, are no longer a demographic majority in America today, and many feel beleaguered. Many regarded Trump as their savior and Trump's aim to quote, make America great again, involved policies with which most white Christian conservatives strongly agreed. Um, the percentage reduction in white Christians was accompanied, um, as he notes, by a growing sense among many that America's quote-unquote Christian values had significantly declined. And again, this speaks to the argument we heard from Jurgensmeyer in weeks one and two about these broader global religious trends that are driving religious violence and calling into question uh, the kind of the authority of the secular state and this kind of political liberalism that underlies it. Uh, movements which are noted, uh, which are rooted, he noted, in these identity-based grievances and losses of power, either real or perceived. Um, and if we kind of step back from the U.S. context and think about these on a broader global scale, we can see that kind of white Christians of European descent uh, are becoming a global minority in many places, and that dynamic is driving the surge of Christian nationalism. United States, the UK, and Denmark with Anders Breivik's, in France, in Germany, um, in any country where we've seen a backlash against immigrants, against Muslims, um, against foreigners and outsiders, um, it's very uh, strongly connected to these growing and shifting religious demographics. Um, so we heard a lot about the American Atlas um, in the article we read. I wanted to take a look at kind of more recent data from um, 2020 to kind of give us a sense of how these are changing. So I just pulled out randomly California where we're at with Chico, Tennessee, Ohio, and New York as four examples. So two kind of liberal elite coastal areas and two more kind of Midwest or Southern states to kind of see how these um, demographics are changing. And what you can see, I put red boxes around a couple here. So you've got um, the different kind of religious traditions on the right there in terms of response rates. And then you've got the number in California and New York, Ohio, and Tennessee. So what you see is that, uh, for example, white evangelical Protestants are making up an increasingly small amount, 9% in California, 6% in New York, but still significant, 17% in Ohio and 27% in Tennessee. Uh, and similarly, white mainline Protestants, a little bit more still, 12% in both California and New York, um, but significantly more, 20% and 19% in Ohio and Tennessee. Now, importantly, we see uh, one difference here when we look at Catholics, white Catholics and Hispanic Catholics. We can see 19% of California identify as Hispanic Catholics, 12% uh, in New York, but only 2% in Ohio and Tennessee. Similarly with uh, white Catholics, small, 9% in California, much larger um, in Ohio and New York, 17 to 14%, but not as many in Tennessee, only 7% there. Um, but interesting, if we look at Judaism, we see um, only 1% in California, 4% in New York, which is not surprising. There's a huge Jewish community in New York um, and 1% in Ohio and Tennessee. So you can see some of these different demographic trends between the coast um, and the Midwest where we see um, the kind of the most dramatic shifts taking place. But in much of the other religious traditions, black Protestants, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, Muslims, and others, there's not really a significant difference between different parts of the country. Now, as Haynes argued about these kind of shifting cultural and social changes in the 1960s, as well as um, the demographic shifts we've been talking about, the world that white Christian conservatives thought they knew appeared to be disappearing. They didn't like what they saw and they wanted it reversed. 
And these two developments, the numerical decline of white Christians and the growing liberalism of American on many social issues, um, essentially makes it implausible that a re-Christianization of America is going to occur on any large scale, um, and particularly the voluntary readoption of these kind of Christian conservative values. So if you're a Christian nationalist and you want these things to happen, what do you do? Well, Haynes argues the answer is to revive and embed Christian conservative values in legislation um, and through kind of the gateway of religious freedom. And this is where we really saw the birth of the kind of political uh, Christian right in the United States. So again, as I mentioned, you have the moral majority being formed in 1979 um, and key influential activists like Jerry Falwell and Pat Buchanan as well as kind of a broader shifting political context with evangelicals like Jimmy Carter being elected a president in the late 70s, and then Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher coming in in the 80s. So this kind of embrace of religious politics we saw again kind of revived after the Clinton period and the Bush years, um, and certainly uh, with a renewed force when Trump came into office in 2016. Now as Haynes argues about the kind of Christian rights embrace of Trump, um, in the context of seemingly inexorable secularization, would not be enough simply to assert that Americans should become, quote, better Christians. It would be necessary to legislate to enforce a return to particularistic religious values favored by the Christian right. And one of the key strategies that these groups saw to do that was by gaining control of the Supreme Court. Now, uh, Haynes talks about a historian and evangelical writer, John Fay, who has identified three overlapping strands within these kind of Christian right dynamics today, which he refers to as court evangelicals. Um, and these are basically Christian political advocates, either insider politicians or kind of the broader public, who not only supported Trump, but helped kind of promote um, and bring these kind of politics center, uh, kind of into center stage um, for his campaign and his four years in office. And so the first of these is a section of the mainstream Christian right, which goes back to the 1980s, the one we've been talking about. Um, a second group of these court evangelicals, uh, Faye argues, is the, these independent charismatics who claim the gift of Pentecostal tradition, so you know, visions, miracles, speaking in tongues, direct revelations from God, uh, but don't necessarily belong to kind of an established Pentecostal group. Um, and importantly, this is one of the largest uh, the groups that's been growing um, in many parts of Africa. So when we looked at the impact, for example, of Pentecostal um, Christianity on traditional African beliefs in Malawi and Zambia last week, this would be a good example of um, the kind of broader glowing, growing intersection of these religious practices and traditions. Um, and the third group of these court evangelicals that Faya talks about are those advocates of the kind of prosperity gospel or the gospel of wealth, um, which advocates that um, similar to kind of the Pentecostal charismatics, but a more emphasis on material rewards. So the idea is that if you follow the kind of the prosperity gospel, um, you will be rewarded by uh, Christianity, by yourself uh, becoming kind of wealthy. So this appeals um, in particular to kind of more working class Christians um, who can be somehow convinced that if they only pray hard enough and give enough money to the church, that somehow God will favor them with financial rewards. Sadly, uh, that doesn't tend to be the case, but it's an important um, political ideology within these uh, more conservative Christian circles. And we also see, as Haynes talks about, individuals, for example, Mike Pence is the vice president, um, Pompeo, William Barr, and others who helped to not only bring in these conservative religious values and politics into the kind of Trump administration, um, but we're also part of this larger and broader landscape of cultural and political influences that 
helped fight against taking a more active uh, stance and earlier response to COVID outbreaks, and also continue to put pressure against things like mandatory social distancing guidelines, masking regulations, um, and various closures, either temporary um, or more long-term on uh, churches and places of worship. So as Perry and his co-authors argue, this mix of conservative politics, religious nationalism, and unfettered capitalism is really that primary force that's driving public opposition to both COVID-19 vaccines and these other health restrictions. So if we dig in a little bit deeper into um, some of this data, um, we can get a better sense of how this is playing out. So this is from uh, March 2021 survey by PRRI and IFYC. So again, this is one of the public religion research institutes that we've looked at data from earlier. And what they found when they were looking at the relationship between vaccine acceptance, hesitancy, and refusal by religious affiliations um, are a few interesting things. So first, uh, the, what jumps out is that 85% of um, Jews that were surveyed were acceptors of um, getting vaccines, only 10% hesitant, and barely 5% refusers. So very significant um, religious uh, driving motivation there. And then the very opposite where less than 45% of white evangelical Protestants um, were accepting of the vaccine, 28% were hesitant, and the largest group of any religious community, 26%, um, were outright refusers. Um, followed shortly after by 20% um, other Protestants of color who were also um, significant refusers, and then um, black Protestants, Mormons, and Hispanic Protestants. If we kind of uh, tease this out by different kinds of religious practices, what we see is that um, those most likely to accept vaccines um, within sort of the broader Christian community tend to be white Catholics, um, strongest amongst those who attend services and only slightly stronger amongst those who seldom or never attend. So this is really an interesting dynamic. So. As a white Catholic, it doesn't seem to matter whether you go to church regularly or only maybe on a few high holy days. Um, the difference is only very little, about five percentage points, um, about your being willing to accept or even being hesitant um, about taking vaccines. Uh, the flip side of that is if we look at white evangelical Protestants. We don't see, again, much difference between attending uh, services regularly or seldomly. Um, led to only a few percentage points difference of those who accepted, 43 versus 78 percent. Um, but we see there a significant um, impact on those who refuse. So 26 percent of those who attend services regularly um, refuse to uh, take the vaccine um, versus 27 percent who seldom or never attend church, again, also refusing to accept the vaccine. So this kind of gets to one of the points Perry was talking about earlier, which is that um, someone's kind of religious faith or attendance in church or frequency of religious uh, kind of devotion doesn't actually tell us a lot on its own about whether or not people are likely to accept or refuse um, COVID vaccine and other beliefs. But when we tie this with other political beliefs, the nationalist beliefs, the conservative political beliefs, um, then we start to really see these come out. But again, if we're looking at you know white Catholics, white mainline Protestants, Hispanic Catholics, black Protestants, or white evangelical Protestants, um, those that are vaccine refusers are most clearly um, represented 
um, first and foremost by white evangelical Protestants, and then to a uh, not insignificant degree, 23% among black Protestants who seldom or never attend church services. Although there, um, we do see a significant difference. Those who attend services among black Protestants, only 15% refusers. So uh, what we do see there is that 41% of black Protestants who seldom or never attend church are accepting of uh, vaccines, but more regular attendance jumps that number from 41% to 57%. So a significant increase there, um, which could do, be due to a whole range of different uh, political factors. Uh, one last kind of chart looking at these numbers. We look at um, groups among whom half or more are vaccine hesitant or refusers. Um, what we see there again is what we were just looking at with these kind of uh, religious nationalist politics. When you fuse republicanism with white evangelical Protestantism and uh, rural residency, you see we find the three biggest blocks of those who refuse or are hesitant to get COVID-19 vaccines. Again, this speaks to um, the kind of intersection of these different pieces of, of identity um, that go into forming part of this kind of white nationalist ideology. Obviously, not only rural, um, we have urban uh, white nationalist as well. So despite the inroads by the Christian right under Trump and supporters like Pence, Pompeo, and Barr, um, Haynes argues that one key issue where they failed to really succeed on their kind of Christian right agenda was pushing for prioritizing um, the economy, religious institutions, and individual freedom over government COVID restrictions. So as Hayes reminds us, um, Christian nationalists are likely to scorn social distancing recommendations, be skeptical about the views of science on the coronavirus pandemic, claim that coronavirus-related lockdown orders unacceptably threaten both the economy and Americans' liberty, and to downplay or overlook the dangers to vulnerable members of society from catching the virus. And these are basically the same findings that Perry and all found in their research as well. Um, but Haynes also notes another important dynamic here, which is the crisis of legitimacy, which is something Jurgensmeyer talked about in our earlier readings. So Haynes suggests that when Christian nationalists were asked whom they trust for pandemic-related information, such as medical experts or the CDC, they tended to choose President Trump, quote, by a landslide, followed by religious organizations and Republicans. So this is important because uh, Christian nationalists not only hold a sort of a radically different view than the majority of the U.S. public, but because they also reject the authority of the scientific experts, the CDC, public health officials, government officials, what they've essentially done is created this closed feedback loop and kind of closed media ecosystem in which public health messaging and kind of government messaging itself becomes fake news or kind of part of this broader secular liberal conspiracy um, that they and their kind of religious cohorts are opposed to. And that makes it even harder to try to get information and uh, kind of convince people within these circles um, to reconsider their beliefs and practices. Um, one of the key places that we've seen this kind of resistance to secular government uh, restrictions playing out um, is the legal system. And the kind of courts have become the central battleground for groups like Liberty Council and others, both at the state and the federal level. So, for example, uh, Liberty Council's founder, Matt Staver, um, argued that California's COVID-19 restrictions in 2020, uh, it's, as he said, it's criminal in California to go to your neighbor's home to pray with them or have a Bible study. Let that sink in. You can go to prison in California for worshiping. Now, in exploring these debates, um, Haynes argues that 
one of the key or perhaps the key constitutional question is this. Is free exercise of religion really being denied as these various advocates have argued? Um, he suggests certainly not allowing religious services to take place as normal, these kind of temporary restrictions, um, are restrictions on the free exercise of religion, um, especially the very important ability to assemble together in faith. However, Haynes argues, um, such restrictions temporarily end only one important aspect of faith. Um, they don't stop people from worshiping their own sort of God or following their religious traditions otherwise. Um, and as he notes, um, followers of pretty much all other faith traditions, including many Christians, um, had no problem moving their sort of religious practices online and accepting various social distancing measures. It may have been inconvenient, um, but Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, and many others did it anyway. So why is it not a restriction of their religious liberties, um, but these conservative Christians only? So at the heart of this issue is not just a question of religious liberty um, or religious belief, um, but it's also, for many Christian nationalists, um, the intersection of these two. So as Haynes notes, uh, for many Christian nationalists, personal freedom and religious freedom are essentially the same thing. So here's uh, Matthew Staver to give us a bit of his take on these issues and the question of kind of religious ideology and what he sees as kind of this bigger culture war going on um, that he and his organization, Liberty Council, are trying to fight for um, for these Christian nationalists. As a pastor, I have never been more thankful for men like yourself, Amen. organizations, Amen. because who would have ever thought the day would come in the United States of America, we'd have to have pastors defended by attorneys while you can riot in the street and do multi-millions yeah. dollars of damage. But if you want to gather, as you just said, in a home and have a Bible study or a worship service, you're criminal. So I yeah. just thank you for your heart Amen. to do this and uh, create an organization like it. Amen. Well, you know, the same thing was happening in California that was happening in Colorado that was happening in these other states. You know, at the same time, like in Colorado, as you well know, as Governor Polis was telling the churches that you couldn't meet or you could only have small numbers compared to everybody else that could meet, he was encouraging all the rioters and the yeah. protesters and the yeah. violent gatherings of people, encouraging them to continue to do what they're doing yeah. and say, well, that's, a, that's very important. We have to encourage that. California Governor Newsom did exactly the same thing. The template was the same. And unlike, say, if you, you look at Florida, it's part of an ideology. You know, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, uh, where our uh, ministry is headquartered, we also have offices in other places, but that's our headquarters. Um, we've had freedom in Florida for churches since April 1, 2020. Right. And it was, as, uh, as you know, the first pastor that got arrested, and that's Dr. Rodney Howard Brown, yep. on the last Sunday of March. Mm -hmm. Governor Ron DeSantis reacted to that. We were about ready to file suit. We were hours away from filing suit, and he changed that. Well, Governor DeSantis believes in marriage as the union of a man and a woman. He is pro-life. He's pro-America. He's pro-religious freedom, and we've had freedom in Florida for months. You go over to other places where you have other governors whether it's Polis in Colorado or Newsom in California or Cuomo in New York, wherever it is, the template's the same. They're very pro-abortion, so they don't respect life, and then consequently they don't respect freedom. Yeah. And they don't respect God's design for marriage and the family. 
And to them, the church is just non-essential. And frankly, it's an annoyance. And they want to push it to the side. So as we heard from Staver there, um, he and his organization, Liberty Council, have filed many lawsuits against these different state-imposed church restrictions, um, including the 2020 lawsuit um, that he was talking about there on behalf of uh, Harvest Rock Church, where Pastor Che Ahn um, was located, and Harvest International Ministry in California. Um, there were a whole bunch of different lawsuits in the uh, pellet court and the district court, uh, some of which even went up to the Supreme Court. Um, but ultimately, um, not too many months ago, in May of 2021, a final settlement was reached between um, basically Liberty Council and State of California. Um, and in that agreement, California agreed to no longer impose restrictions upon houses of worship um, and to pay Liberty Council about $1.35 million to cover their costs for litigating these cases. So Staver argued, for example, that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's COVID restrictions discriminated against churches while providing preferential treatment to many secular businesses and gatherings. Uh, and that Californians may never again place discriminatory restrictions on churches and places of worship. This is after the uh, May 2021 lawsuit. Pastor Allen's leadership and, and courage has toppled the tyranny and freed every pastor and church in California. Now, in their settlement, the courts basically told California that um, in the future, they had to impose the same set of restrictions on churches as they did with all other essential services, um, and with only really two very limited exceptions, um, couldn't place any further or new restrictions on religious gatherings in California. Um, but as Staver's comments really illustrate, both in the video um, and in other places that we read, Liberty Council sees their efforts in these lawsuits as part of a, a larger national strategy to try to overturn these public health restrictions um, on churches, not just in California, but in other states as well. Um, and so what we see then is a pattern in which in 2020, um, the courts largely upheld the right of states and the federal government to impose um, various public health restrictions on churches and houses of worship um, in order to keep people safe from COVID. Um, but by the sort of spring and now the summer of 2021, um, the courts began to back away from that position and are now giving greater latitude to these religious freedom arguments um, than they had in the past. And importantly, um, part of that may be due to the fact that the Supreme Court has shifted to an increasingly conservative religious Christian worldview um, in the past two years since the COVID outbreak began. Now, as Haynes suggests, um, following Trump's failure to win the 2020 election, um, Staver of Liberty Council believed that it was essential to challenge the restrictions on religious services in California. Um, and as we were just discussing, um, because the Supreme Court's new conservative sort of preponderance of members, now is the time to file the case. And, you know, Staver's uh, political intuitions were right, um, and uh, the timing was perfect. So as Haynes argued in his piece, um, the ability of state governors to close religious places of worship um, both illustrated the limits on the power of the president and the public health can take supremacy over religious freedom in America today. That may have been true in 2020, um, but what we're seeing with these new rulings in 2021, it suggests that um, removing religious restrictions and upholding arguments about religious freedom, um, as Liberty Council and others have advanced, um, are actually gaining much more political steam. And Haynes's claim that public health is still supreme over religious freedom um, in America may not be true for much longer. Now, as Staver has made clear um, in uh, the previous video clip and elsewhere, 
Um, this is not just a fight about religious freedom, but it's actually part of this bigger ideological struggle. You heard him um, comparing um, the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020 to these kind of violent riots versus you know, people being arrested for trying to have a Bible study um, at their home in California. So he sees them as part of this broader ideological struggle between Christian nationalists and kind of secular government uh, forces, which goes back to a point that Haynes made earlier, which is that state governors who ordered the closure of religious places of worship for normal meetings were vilified as aggressive secularists who acted in order not to protect public health, but to undermine religious freedom. And we heard this from Stevers in that video. He basically said that, you know, um, there's this template that all these liberal um, governors are following that they don't care about life, uh, and you kind of hinted at they're also uh, not American. So somehow they're not true kind of patriots. They're not, they don't fit up to this ideal of what a Christian nationalist should be. So I want to kind of end our week four discussion um, by looking at two final important points that Hayes makes in his piece. Um, the first one is he argues that this idea of religious freedom in America um, is not closed by the failure of Trump to win his re-election, and that for more than 40 years, the Christian right has been a powerful political influence um, in kind of raising these issues, and has recently managed to essentially um, take over the political party of the Republicans and make religious freedom kind of a central Republican party platform. And so along with the growing influence of Christian nationalists, um, these political trends are likely to continue shaping American politics for the foreseeable future, including the 2022 election. Secondly, Hayes argued that the corona pandemic um, has shown that there are certain conditions where religious freedom is not the first freedom in America, and rather it's shown that public health, um, particularly when we see kind of a violent outbreak of a global pandemic killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, that that is more important than religious freedom, and that religious freedom is necessarily and can necessarily be temporarily curtailed for the greater public good. Um, but as these uh, more recent court rulings in 2021 suggest, um, particularly with a new, more conservative religious Supreme Court, um, that may no longer be the case moving forward. And we may see um, not just arguments about religious freedom, but a whole range of arguments rooted in these kind of Christian nationalist uh, sort of ideologies and views, um, gaining more force in lawsuits that make their way up to the Supreme Court. So as we begin to see another surge, unfortunately, right now of COVID-19 outbreaks as um, both the sort of Delta variant increases uh, sort of its spread and reach, and as um, all those people who claim that, you know, COVID is a hoax or the viruses don't work um, are getting infected because they are not vaccinated, um, we're going to continue to see these debates involving public health measures and arguments about religious freedom. Um, probably growing more intense in the next year or two. So regardless of our interest in kind of religious studies, um, these are going to be political issues with a religious overtone that we're going to have to continue to think about, wrestle with, and engage with um, in the years uh, ahead. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. This is the final episode of this special series of sort of podcast emphasis, if we will, coming from our World Religions and Global Issues class. But don't go away. Be back soon with more new, exciting content. The intro song this week is Breakfast on the Dark Side of the Moon by Mana Junkie. And the closing music is Firefly Memories by Rewob. You can find a link to both songs in the show notes for this episode. As always, thanks for joining me for another episode of The End of the World, and I'll see you again soon. Goodbye.